Today's reading is taken from Isaiah 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Who do you listen to? Who will you listen to? As Damien said already, that's the question, that's the theme of kind of what we're going to be looking at in Isaiah 50. And, and if you realize that many of us are kind of caught up in a stream of voices coming from without and from within. Uh, we take the voice in our own head pretty seriously at times. And, and we almost have a religious devotion to our own thoughts and feelings. Our culture says, um, basically, if I have it, a thought or a feeling, I must express it. Kind of like a religious reaction says, uh, if I have it, a thought or a feeling, I must suppress it. And so this is kind of the world we live in where we take what happens internally and we take it very, very seriously. Um, a psychologist tells a story about uh, a young man who has a newborn baby. Um, it's not me. And he talks about how this child is squealing and screaming and it's sleepless nights for week in and week out over and over and over again to the point where the dad is trying to soothe his child back to sleep. And as he's rocking the baby back and forth, the thought kind of flickers through his mind, which is throw it out the window. And in that moment, he experiences super, like this intense amount of shame. What kind of monster am I that I would have such a thought? I would submit to you that you actually have a little bit less control over what shows up in your mind than you think you do. And what really matters is what do you do with that voice inside your head? And, and so in this scenario, what happened was he took his thoughts a little too seriously. What if instead he was just like, huh, that was a surprising thought. I must be really tired and overwhelmed right now. Like imagine the difference that that would have if he refused to listen to the voice inside his head so much. Um, this might be the reason why we have ears on the outside of our head and not the inside of our head because our voice was not meant to be primary. And yet there are voices from outside as well. And so I would just ask, who is it that you listen to? 
If we were to take kind of an influence inventory um, of all of the, the podcasts that you listen to, of the shows that you stream, of the influencers you follow on Instagram, of the people you get your hot takes from, of the, the what's next up on your YouTube kind of playlist queue, who do you listen to? So today what we're going to look at is that it is inevitable that we're caught up in a chorus of voices, each of them trying to get our attention, each of them trying to influence us one way or another, each of them trying to disciple us, you could say. This is inevitable, but the question is, is which voice are you going to give the most weight to? And so as we explore Isaiah chapter 50, if you would open your Bible or get your worship guide out to Isaiah chapter 50, as we explore this text together, I want to look at two questions. The first one is, who will you listen to? And the second one is, what will you walk by? Again, the first one looking at verses four through nine, who will you listen to? And then the second one is, what will you walk by? Looking at verses 10 and 11. Look with me at verse four of Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Notice that phrase, those who are taught. In the book of Isaiah, that phrase comes up elsewhere. And in, for instance, in Isaiah 8, 16, it's actually translated this way, seal the teaching among my disciples. And so those who are taught is synonymous with being a disciple. And, and this matters uniquely to us because as Damien said earlier, our mission as a church is to make whole life disciples for their callings. Discipleship is what this church is all about. Discipleship is what this text is all about. And so when we ask the question, who will you listen to? That's a discipleship question. And I want to ask that, who is speaking? Who is the teacher in this text? Look again with me at how in this passage, the, the word, the phrase, the Lord God shows up four times. It, it kind of punctuates this passage. And, and it actually shows up here more than anywhere else in the entire book of Isaiah. And so it begs the question, why? Why is it that right here, Isaiah chooses to call God the Lord God, or you could translate it, the sovereign Lord? I think it's because he's emphasizing that the authority that God has as our teacher. The authority that the Lord God has as the primary voice in our life. And, and that's because the Lord God has the might and the right to be the primary influence in your life. And, and look at me, what does he do with this authority? What does he do with this might and this right? Well, let's go on in verse four. It says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Like, this is beautiful because the sovereign Lord uses his limitless power to raise up his servant, verse 10, in order to give him words that will feel like a cup of cold water to a parched listener. That's the kind of disciples that the Lord God makes. Those who are able to sustain with a word those who are weary. This word sustain has, the, has this idea of, of bending down, stooping down in order to lift up. The, the pastor and Old Testament scholar Ray Ortland says this, a sustaining ministry, a gospel ministry requires more thought, more study, more insight than a condemning ministry. A finger pointing ministry is easy, 
Moralism is the default setting of our minds, but it takes divine wisdom to understand God's grace in a new way so that we can sustain weary people. Jesus himself gave himself to that ministry. In other words, it's easy to cut down and to crush and to oppress with our words. It's much more difficult to bend down and to lift up the weary with our words. We learned early on that the nursery rhyme, sticks and stones, is a farce. And that's what this text is saying, is that sustaining with a word those who are weary is at the heart of what it means to be a whole life disciple. So how do we become those kind of people? Well, the great reformer, uh, Martin Luther, was reflecting on Psalm 119. And as he was reflecting on Psalm 119, he, distil- he distilled three practices that help make you into the kind of person who could sustain with a word him or her who is weary. And those three practices are this. He said, meditation, prayer, and trial. And I think we see all three of those in Isaiah 50. We see meditation, prayer, and trial. So look with me first at meditation. At verse four, at the end there, it says, morning by morning, the Lord God awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Listen, I think that one of the reasons why most of us have a hard time getting something out of our Bible reading is because we do not know how to meditate. There's very few, if any, promises in the entire Bible for reading the Bible. The promises for the Bible are to meditate, to keep, to delight, to keep, to act it out, to observe it. That's where the promises of scripture are. A cursory reading will do you little to no good because the Bible is meditation literature. In other words, scripture only discloses, only offers itself to those who will give it a slow, patient, careful, attentive, repetitive lingering over the text. My favorite metaphor to think about meditation is one of hospitality. Hospitality. So meditation is hospitality. We indwell a passage of scripture. We begin by taking a tour of its dimensions and we spend time with it and in it. And as we do it, we kind of learn its quirks and its contours. We become so familiar with it that we could navigate its hallways in our sleep. And then, because the text was such a good host, we return the favor and we invite it to come and stay with us. But we notice as it shows up at our front door of our heart that it's actually here to stay. It packed a little bit more bags than we expected. And the text shows up and it it takes up residence inside you and it starts to study kind of the architecture of your heart. And as it does it, it finds all the squeaky floorboards and the leaky faucets. As it's inspecting things, it begins to open all the doors of your heart, especially the ones that you closed and locked. And the text then uh, begins to unravel blueprints and take out a toolbox. And and at first you're a little bit cautious and you're like, what is this going to feel like? And then you begin to be comforted because you realize that the renovating presence of the word of God within you is actually the very thing you need if when the rain falls and the floods come, you are not to be blown over and your house is not going to be destroyed. Meditation is about mutual hospitality with the word of God. And so as we meditate on the text, as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, as Paul would put it, uh, we begin to become those kind of people that can hear and obey even in our own weariness. When we meditate, we are invited to wake up to the realities, both within our own hearts and also to the things that make this world weary, as our own Kelly Haddock put it in an article recently. 
Wisdom comes from obedience in our weariness. Now, hard-won wisdom is the very thing that sustains the weary. And if you're anything like me, you have a temptation to think that wisdom comes from the next psychology book or leadership book or uh, sociology or self-help. Or, and, and I read those and they're good, but, but wisdom isn't, isn't primarily found there. Wisdom is primarily found from being able to take this book and living a life of internalizing this book and then externalizing it in our lives. That's what wisdom looks like. That's where wisdom comes from, being willing to wake up over a lifetime, morning by morning, with an open ear to the word of God so that you can hear as those who are taught. Um, In community Bible reading, uh, which is a church-wide plan, project for us as a congregation to meditate on this book, in community Bible reading, we're reading through 1 Samuel. And, and as I'm reading through 1 Samuel, I notice that there's two great men of God, Eli and Samuel, who have two idiots for sons. And in, in a real way, the text uh, points it out that dads are the ones that are responsible for that. As a new pastor, as a new father, I feel a sense of fear and trembling when I read those passages. But instead of kind of closing my ears off to that and like pushing it out, instead I'm trying to open my heart up to it. What could God be saying to me in this? I don't think it's just accidental that we happen to be reading through 1 Samuel at this time. And, and so I'm paying attention to it. I'm praying, I'm asking the Lord, help me, help me here. Cause I don't know how to raise a son in the fear and, and instruction of you, Lord, help me. And I'm beginning to talk to the guys in my circle and I'm saying, hey, what did this look like for you? What does it look like for you to work this out? I'm trying to meditate on the word of God. But meditation is not enough in and of itself. We have to pray. We must pray. And that's the second practice Luther gives us. And so we look in verse four and it says, the Lord God has given me a tongue. He awakens my ear to hear. The Lord God has, in verse five, opened my ear. You see that if we are gonna become the kind of people that are taught by the Lord God, we need divine intervention. We need him to show up because we all have a tendency towards selective listening, to hear what we want to hear. This is why we just did this and we do it every time we read the word of God is we pray a prayer of illumination, putting our dependency on display before the Holy Spirit saying, open up our ears, let us hear, because if we don't, we're in trouble. I don't know if some of you probably do this, but I had a friend in high school who was like committed to those earwax candles. You know what I'm talking about? Where you kind of like stick the candle in your ear, you light it on fire and it like slurps the ear. Sorry, I try to go for like the grossest verb I could find there. It kind of like grabs the earwax and sucks it out of your ear, right? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you might do this. That's okay. I've never done it before. Maybe it works. The Holy Spirit is an earwax candle. (laughs) He grabs this, whatever's plugging your ears and he begins to draw it out. He opens your ears so that you might actually hear and obey the word of God. That's what we see in in the text here. He opens our deaf ears so that we might hear the word of the Lord. Without that, we're desperate. Without that, we're in trouble. And so listen, if we're gonna speak with the tongue of a disciple, we must first hear with the ear of a disciple. That's why prayer is essential. But look at what happens when we become responsive to the text of scripture. When we become those who are taught, look at verse five with me, it says this. The Lord God, again, has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. 
I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So if you're tracking with this, meditation and prayer will inevitably lead to trial. The third of Luther's practices. You see the connection here. Notice that it's by being obedient that the servant's back was beaten. I did not turn my back, so they beat my back. Basically what he's saying. That's because to be faithful to the word will ultimately lead to contest with the world. Always. That's because if you really think for a moment, just kind of pause and consider what it's like to actually be somebody who believes that this book actually means something. Like, Like we are a people who would say that this compilation of literature over, that was written over about uh, roughly 2,000 years by about 40 different authors across three continents, we really believe that this book should speak authoritatively to our modern world when our iPhones can take slow fees. Like, that's crazy. That's a slow motion selfie, by the way. Um, that is insane that we would trust this text, and it, it really does sound insane to modern ears. And yet when we see how the Bible comes into every culture and has this unique ability to comfort and confront, because the question at the core of culture is this, who will you listen to? The word of God comes in and it affirms and it challenges every culture. Like it comes into a collectivistic culture and and it points out the dignity of the individual made in the image of God comes into an individualistic culture like our own, and it points out that the, that the individual is actually called to self-sacrifice for the sake of others. In 2010, I had the opportunity to go and do some discipleship work with uh, some college students in an East African country. And while I was there, I was meeting with a student and the student asked me this question, what do you believe about homosexuality? That's one of those questions you're like, all right, here we go. We're getting after this. And, and so I have some assumptions and I make some assumptions. And, and so I answer by saying, you know what? This is what I believe. I believe the Bible calls us to love and to serve the LGBT plus community. Um, and yet I believe that homosexual practice is a sin because it's not in line with God's design for human sexuality. And, and very sincerely, the student looks and, and kind of follows up with this question and says, but should they receive the death penalty? Do you hear that that was the question he was asking? I came in with my, you know, modern American Western ears and I heard a very different question than what he was asking. But listen, before you go and impose your modern Western progressive worldview on this East African, let me ask you a question. What standard do you have to confront that view of the world? What basis do you have? We were able to sit down with an open Bible and we were able to discuss how scripture, because of Jesus going to the cross for those who were, uh, didn't agree with him, that scripture calls us to self-sacrificially lay our lives down for those we don't agree with. But we were able to do that talking about this book. Like an East Coast American was sitting down with an East Coast African and we were able to discuss our worldview because of this ancient Near Eastern book. And what was not happening in that moment was some imperialistic, you know, your culture is antiquated, you just don't understand things. What was actually happening was the imperialism of the kingdom of God was coming down and it was critiquing and it was correcting the kingdoms of this world. 
If we stand for something, we're going to experience trials. If we have convictions about anything, you're gonna be led into contests over those convictions. And so do you let this book, do you, let, do you have an open ear that, that allows the word of God to comfort you and confront you in various places of your life? If not, I would submit that maybe you've plugged your ears to the very places it's trying to speak to you. And so we need to hear with an open ear because to be faithful to this word will result in contest with the world. Look at what happens to the servant in verses six through nine. Read these with me. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Now, at this point, it's almost undeniable who the servant of Isaiah 50 is, right? I mean, who else at 12 years old was marveling the teachers in the temple because he spoke with a tongue of those who were taught? Who else had words that offered so much sustenance that the weak and the weary and the wayward could not help but be drawn to him? Who else spent long nights and early mornings with an open ear to hear, to be taught by his father? Who else never turned his back in rebellion, but instead set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to face our disgrace? Who else was it that actually did not hide his face from the spit of Roman soldiers, but he gave his beard to be plucked out. He gave his back to be beaten. Who else was it who, when he went to the curse of the cross, was trusting that he would be helped by the Lord God and that the Lord God would raise him back to life so he could overcome his adversary? Verse, verse four says that the servant will have a word, a word to speak that will sustain the weary. What is that word? It's the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That's the word that sustains the weary. And so this morning, I'm asking you, will you listen to this word? Like this morning, are you weary of your own sin? If you are, listen to Jesus as he says, who will declare you guilty? This morning, are you weary of fighting for yourself? If you are, let Jesus defend you and declare who will contend with me. This morning, are you weary of oppression? Then come to Jesus and hear him say, let us stand together, verse eight. Can you hear him this morning? Can you hear his voice today? Will you listen to it? Verse 10 says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Do you see this connection now? Because Jesus was so well discipled by his father in heaven, there is this intimate link between Obey, fearing the Lord and obeying the voice of Jesus. And so this morning, will you be taught by this teacher? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and learn from me. Be taught by me, become my disciple. And as we conclude, um, I, I, I wanna ask you again, who will you listen to? And if it's Jesus, 
then verse 10 and 11 form a conclusion for us that kind of help us out. Because if you follow the servant who had to walk into darkness willingly, then you, being a disciple of that servant, are going to be called to walk into darkness in various places of your life. And so that's the question is, when you follow Jesus into darkness, what will you walk by? That's the second question I'm asking. What will you walk by in the darkness? Look with me at verse 10. About midway through it says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light. That's the situation. You're walking in darkness, you have no light. Here's option number one. Will you trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on your God? Or option number two, Will you behold, uh, will you kindle a fire? Will you equip yourselves with burning torches? Will you walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled? Those are the questions. Option one, will you trust? Will you rely on the word of Yahweh? Or are you gonna light your own torches? See, the structure of reality is often asking this question. Are you gonna walk by faith? or by sight. I mean, this, this thread runs through the storyline of scripture. We've just seen this in Genesis 3, right? Eve, because of her sight, because she saw the fruit was looking good, right? That's why she disobeyed the word of command that said, do not eat that fruit. Sight, walking by sight rather than by faith. Um, if we had more time, this is a sermon in and of itself. We could trace that theme through scripture and, and show you how the core question that you're answering is, am I gonna walk by faith or by sight? Am I gonna trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on my God or am I gonna light up a torch? This is because one of the most fundamental axioms of scripture is that we are walking on a dark path. That's what light is. And we live in a culture that would say seeing is believing right? No pick, no proof. If I can't see it streamed on my phone like that, it didn't happen. And yet the Bible says believing is seeing. Psalm 27, 13 says, I believe that I shall look, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Believing is seeing in scripture. And so as we walk this dark path of discipleship, um, there's plenty of places in which we are going to be pressed in by an almost oppressive darkness. You probably know the verse, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That implies darkness, does it not? You don't need a lamp and a light when you're walking in the daytime. And so the fact that we find ourselves disoriented in darkness, uh, we've got to pay attention to what's the temptation in that moment? What are we tempted to walk by? Like when the darkness of disappointed desires shows up, when you're disappointed because you didn't get a promotion or a spouse or a child, what do you do with that? When you face the darkness of dissatisfaction with your work or your looks or your house or your spouse, like what do you do with that? When the darkness of being distraught over an undiagnosed illness or an unfaithful spouse or unruly kids, what do you do with that darkness. Verse 11 says that the temptation in that moment is for us to kindle a fire, to equip ourselves with burning torches, to walk by the light of your fire. 
And so this lighting of a torch is a metaphor for when we're in the darkness, we're tempted to go kind of do it on our own. Another way to put that is to walk by sight. Do y'all remember the show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Uh, I actually watched like a section of an episode fairly recently because this was on when I was a child on Nickelodeon, by the way, okay? I would watch Are You Afraid of of the Dark and I would be uh, answering in the affirmative, absolutely, yes, I'm afraid of the dark. Like it was, it was a kind of a terrifying show. And the question is a good one. Are you afraid of the dark? Fundamentally, the answer is yes. In some way, shape or form, all of us are. It's why we avoid the darkness at all costs. And yet Psalm 23 says that he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's awesome, verse three. Then verse four says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Or as the Hebrew puts it, even though I walk through the darkest valley. So notice the connection there. The Lord's leading will be through a dark valley. You can guarantee that. And so we find ourselves in the darkness. And and what do you do with that? What, What fires do you light up when you're experiencing disappointment? What do you walk by when you're burning with comparison? When you find yourselves with like this envy that's just simmering for some people and this criticism that's ready to scorch others? What do you do when you're distraught and your self-pity actually singes anybody that comes near to you to give you some sort of care? What do you do? What torches do you light when you're in the dark? Verse 11, the point of verse 11 is to warn us. It ends by basically saying, I'm gonna summarize the end of verse 11. It's basically saying, play with fire and you will get burnt. And so we have to heed that warning. And we have to recognize that our good father allows darkness into our life to teach us to walk in the dark. I grew up on some property in Michigan and and next to our family property was a a graveyard, a cemetery. And our driveway actually ran probably the length of a football field all the way along the cemetery, okay? And one of my chores growing up was on trash day, I wheeled the trash cans out to the end of this football field long driveway. And I'd put it at the end there, mind you. Again, can you picture this? Next to a cemetery. Inevitably, because I was a irresponsible young man, I would always wait until like 9.30, 10 o'clock the night before trash pickup. And so it's pitch black out and I'm walking, pulling two trash cans on wheels next to a cemetery. And I'm, I'm like, every time I go and do this, I'm terrified. And every time I get to the end, I like almost shove the trash cans and just bolt as fast. I, I actually am a fairly fast runner. I think this is why. I think this was training for me. And so I learned to walk in the dark and it was terrifying. Sometimes my parents would do this thing where, you know, they'd be like, hey, Ben, you need to pull the trash cans in. And I'd be like, hey, will you please go alongside me with the, with the headlights as we drive down? I would love that. And most often that wasn't the case. Were my parents cruel? I don't think so. Actually, reading a book more recently um, called Learning to Walk in the Dark, the author makes this point. She says, courage, which is no more than the management of fear must be practiced. Do you hear that? Courage has to be practiced. She said, for this, children need a widespread, easily obtained, cheap, renewable resource of something that's scary, but not actually dangerous. Darkness fits that bill. And so what I realized was happening was I was being trained to walk in the dark. 
I wasn't in really any jeopardy. I was okay. And, and as I'm facing the darkness and having to walk in it and not avoid it because I have to do what I'm supposed to do, I'm, I'm beginning to develop a courage to walk in the dark. And this is where you learn, as verse 10 puts it, to trust in the name of the Lord and to rely on your God. If you never walk in the dark, you'll never learn how to walk by faith. Because it's in the darkness that our faith either flickers out or is inflamed. So as we close, I want to talk about what does it look like to walk by faith in the dark? I've got three points, three T's, if you will. We turn, we trust, we treasure. Okay, so first of all, we turn to God from our torches. We acknowledge our dependence on God in the dark. We say, hey, in the past, I've made these torches. I'm not going to walk by their light anymore. I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. We turn from those torches to our God, and then we trust. We trust in that moment that he is a good leader, right? I said that Psalm 23 says, uh, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I can guarantee the psalmist, like you and me, never saw the Lord's presence actually tangibly, visibly with him. He took that by faith. So we're called to turn from our torches and then to trust in the word of God over what we can see in those moments. And then finally, we treasure. We treasure Jesus as better than our torches. This is gonna look differently for some of you. Some of you, it's gonna look like singing songs to Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. That might be your song, right? Like you gotta sing and treasure Jesus as better than your torches. Otherwise, the confidence that you have is not gonna get from your head into your heart. And so we turn, we trust, and we treasure Jesus as better than our torches. And we walk by faith and not by sight. Um, I am a surfer. And one of the things you do as a surfer, you know this, is that the best waves are usually right as dawn breaks because there's less wind and so the waves are glassier. It's, it's really peaceful and beautiful. Um, but you have to do this thing called dawn patrol, all right? So if you're a surfer, you wake up way before the sun rises so you can get your board and get to the beach and get out into the water and you're out in the water and it's dark and it's cold and you're wondering what's murking beneath you in the water and you're just sitting there and you're anxiously anticipating the rising sun coming to bring light and heat to, to rescue you from the cold and the darkness. Isn't that the Christian life? Isn't the Christian life a form of dawn patrol? I mean, we are waiting in the darkness. It's cold, it's dark, we feel alone, and yet we're looking, longing for Jesus to show up, the rising sun, S-O-N. And when he gets there, his light and his warmth change us. We're no longer in darkness. We're in the light of life now. And so as we close, the question I'm asking you is, what will you walk by, your own torches or the light of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, you have granted us the light of your son, Jesus. You sent him into the world as the light of the world. One of the things we celebrate in this season of Advent, that darkness is in the world, that light came into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. And so we look to you, King Jesus. We follow you. We open our ears to hear you, to be taught by you, to follow you. 
Holy Spirit, we ask, open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wonderful things in this good news about Jesus crucified and risen for us. Spirit of God, lead us by faith, not by sight through our dark times. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.